I do have a present. <laughs> but not just any present. Oh, no. The most amazing birthday present ever. This extraordinary machine was originally created by Leonardo da Vinci 400 years ago. But the blueprints have been lost for centuries until just last week on a stormy night when a sunken pirate ship washed up on the shores of Nantucket. They found skeletons and treasures, and the blueprints were recovered by none other than J.W. Mercantile. The blueprints crossed my desk very briefly, but I managed to commit them to memory, and if I have remembered correctly... Happy birthday, Caroline. This is a wishing machine. You tell it your wishes. And it keeps them safe until they come true. Even if you forget them. They're always there. Today, we are going to have a different show. I think that sometimes it is vital to stop and celebrate our achievements. After releasing our first 20 chapters, I felt that it was an excellent moment to look back and notice not only how much I have learned and evolved from the first episode, but also the opportunity I have enjoyed to talk to great guests. The audio we just heard is from the movie The Greatest Showman, when Mr. Barnum, impersonated by Hugh Jackman, gives to his daughter Caroline as a birthday present a wishing machine and tells her that this artifact will keep her wishes safe until they come true, even when she forgets them. I came to realize that it doesn't matter how big dreams we have or how much energy and time we dedicate to reach them. What really matters is with who we turn those dreams into reality and share the moment. How we ask for help to others and offer them support at the same time. One of those dreams I had as a kid was to be a radio host and have my own program. I used to play with my tape recorder and simulate that I was running my own show. For many years I forgot about that dream and just yesterday, while preparing today's program, it became conscious again. It felt like if my wishing machine had been keeping my wish safe, even if I had forgotten it, like with Mr. Barnum's wishing machine. This podcast I have been producing during the last year and a half is the realization of that dream, and I would like to thank you all who are listening and following my humble channel, and each one of the guests for making my dream reality. To celebrate the 20 chapters milestone, we are giving away 10 audio courses based on my upcoming book, The Discipline of Success, a guide to transform, innovate, or simply improve your performance and life. To gain access to the course, click on the link below in the chapter description area or go to thedisciplineofsuccess.com and input your info in the Get Your Free Preview fields and use the code PODCAST20 in the space or text. A few of you have been asking which have been my favorite guests, and that's a really hard question to answer, as I have enjoyed each one of the interviews. What I would say instead is that there have been a few topics that have made a difference. Today, we'll go through my top 5 favorite topics. This is Mark Siles speaking from our studios in Helsinki, and once again, welcome to the Coaching Talks podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey. It hasn't been easy to choose my top five favorite topics. 
After many hours reviewing all the chapters, I chose as number five the moment we discussed with the senior executive and business coach Daniel Pasquale about what it takes for leaders to succeed. Let's listen again to that moment. Enjoy. So for you, like, which are the main insights you got during the last years on this dimension? Uh, which would be the main qualities uh, you think that we can work on to enhance our success at work? Yes, Mark. Um, if, if I look back on my coaching session, say, in 2018 with uh, thought leaders and CEOs all around the world, it comes to my mind a kind of list of key aspects about what qualities you need to develop because they will carry you forward. Let me start this checklist with, uh, let's say, mental health. Yeah, mm -hmm. If you are stressed, and this can be at any level, you are not insightful or empathetic. This is a fact. You're less capable of listening to your customers or employees. And that means at the end that you are less agile and approachable in your business operations. We were actually discussing in one of our previous podcasts about the, the impact of stress in our capacity to make wide decisions and how mindfulness can help us with our mental health as well. Uh, what else can we do about it? So have this clear in your mind. Your mental state affects directly your mindset and your motivation. Mm. And those will affect your ability to lead. So to keep your mental health up, surround yourself with the right people and influences. Be really selective. You are the owner of your life and with how you spend your time. As a good leader, you need to be a proactive, but also a kind of reactive thinker. You need to be able to use both approaches and know when to lean one way or the other. When you act reactively, you handle pressure in real time. So you solve problems on your own and accept responsibility. When I see reactive leaders, they are like a firefighter making snap decisions based on the current situation. It can be really stressful, yeah. but it's great for short-term challenges and crisis situations. On the other hand, proactive leadership means you need to be forward-looking, confident, and also analytical. But only looking to the future can often leave you disconnected from what is currently most demanding. My advice here is that a great CEO needs to be just flexible, not short or long-sighted, but with many perspectives and lenses, able to look closely at the present or the future and being able to get from one to the other really, really easily. Wow, so it's long-term long vision, short-term action, and adapting to both perspectives, uh, according to what you're saying. Exactly. That sounds a rather exhausting uh, mode to be in, to be honest. Well, that's true. And actually, a very important aspect is to avoid decision fatigue. Mm. I read some time ago that the average adult makes like, it was 35,000 decisions every single day. So by the end of the day, even insignificant choices become challenging simply because you've made thousands of tiny choices already. For me, this leads to a fatigue of a decision-making process. And when your decisions shape the entire operation of a whole business that perhaps is growing or struggling, you can't afford to make them white tired. I've seen many CEOs that decision fatigue leads to logical and sometimes snap decisions. So to handle it, I would recommend to simply try to reduce the number of choices you have to make. Sounds perhaps impossible or illogic at the beginning, but you need to create rules and routines for the most trivial choices. This will help you to go through the small domestic aspects of your day without thinking about them. Mm. My proposal is to try to make your biggest decisions in the morning, when your mind is at its clearest and most productive. Don't overthink and try to take in every factor. Look for choices between ways of getting things done and make them within a set of time frame. That's really interesting. I mean, this is actually an area which has been well researched. Uh, for example, back in 2017, 
Some researchers look at the decision-making behavior of 184 users uh, of the free internet uh, chess server uh, to discover at uh, what time of the day players were making their best decisions. And it showed that uh, whether you are a morning person or not, the most accurate decision-making happens on the early side of the day between about 8 a.m. and 1 p.m. And other studies also point at the importance to take breaks to improve our performance during the day. Just on that dimension, Daniel, looking at the focus we should have on a daily basis, uh, which are the main soft skills executives and professionals should develop? Look, the four key qualities that great executives must master every day are empathy, clarity, passion, and humility. I see all these four qualities in top performers that really achieve to move people to action and bring businesses and organizations forward. Let's start with empathy. Think about it. When you're leading a team, putting yourself in another person's shoes, you can predict what they want, how they feel, and how they react to a challenge or a change. Empathy is a vital quality in effective leadership. It takes time to develop, but the investment is worth it because it allows you to work around personal resistance before it emerges. I know the daily agenda and the list of high-priority tasks of a CEO makes it quite impossible, but you need to find the time to ask questions, and you need to ask them about your employees. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about hours, but perhaps two to three minutes of high-quality and intense conversations. As a good friend, of mine told me once you need to make short and simple questions and with the highest intensity put 100% of your attention on what they say and how they say it. Mm -hmm. Find out what they drives them on and really motivates them, what challenges them and what fulfills them. It's not just in the workplace but in their broader life. Get this kind of intimacy. This will allow you uh, to see and it will show you how the view of their business, what they think about the business, what they think about themselves, about the organization. And all this will connect with the existing culture and, most importantly, how their understanding is about the things that are going on in the company. The fourth best moment on my top five list was the discussion with exercise physiologist and master trainer Tina Hoffman on how creating a better understanding of how we experience stress can help us improve our performance. Some of your speeches, I noticed that you talk about uh, stress and one of the main topics on your areas of expertise. Uh, so just to clarify, is actually stress what? You know, should we just try to get rid of it out of our lives completely? Stress in itself is not bad, I don't think. And also research backs that because there is positive and negative kind of stress. And uh, to some degree, stress definitely belongs to life. It helps us get through the different demands of life and it helps us rise to the level of performance that is needed from us. But absolutely, stress can be very bad and very poisonous if it's excessive or chronic or sort of overwhelming. So there is too much demands on us all the time. We don't need to think of it in a way that we should get rid of stress, but we should definitely learn how to handle it and sort of how to tame stress 
And uh, that means that we need to learn to recognize when it's becoming excessive. It's personal for every individual, but we need to recognize the signs when the stress is becoming excessive and then learn to push that off button and switch off and get some recovery. Because if we let that excessive stress continue for too long, then it clearly is associated with many problems. For example, burnout, like you mentioned in the beginning. You just mentioned experience of good stress. Do you have some examples about what that could be and how is that helping us performing better? Well, I often use an example of um, from the sports world when I talk to different groups is that like if you're watching um, an exciting football match or hockey game or something like that. So if your own team is winning and you're really loving watching the game, so your body is going through all kinds of positive stress at that moment. Physiologically, if you measure that situation, the signal will look just the same whether your team is losing or winning because the positive and the negative stress and the emotions, they cause the same reaction in the body. Hmm. But of course, positive stress also, it can just mean good vibes at work. So when we when we like our work and we are doing things that we enjoy, it gives us a good feeling and we get a feeling of accomplishment and positive stress when we do our jobs and feel like we are doing a good job in that. But if it's then too much, if it goes on all the time, then that positive at sometimes it begins to turn into a negative stress when we suddenly feel like there is more demands on us that we can possibly cope with. It's not only how we experience it, but it's also how our body reacts to that. Which would you say that are the main challenges and dangers professionals are facing at the moment to keep a healthy lifestyle at work? I think maybe number one in my book is this kind of 24-7 availability that affects so many of us today. Sort of in the past, a doctor might be on call sometimes, but in reality, a lot of people in a way are on call all the time. They're just one email or one text message or one phone call away from being at work. The very blurred line between at work and off work. And I think this typical example is that we can take a meeting or a call pretty much from anywhere, whether we are at lunch or getting a haircut or traveling. So we are constantly available (laughs) and we are afraid of missing out. (laughs) I'm afraid of missing out. I heard that before, right? You know, is that (laughs) important email just been sent five seconds ago? So I, I, I think in my book, that's probably the very biggest challenge, um, forgetting that we need to switch off. We can't always be on. We can't always be on. What would you say that are the pressures at the moment in our society that makes us believe that this is what we have to do? Um, Yeah, I think uh, maybe this kind of thinking that if you are not busy, you must be lazy. And and then um, this, I, I was just at a conference in London last week, and and this term that many of us have heard, this F O M O FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. So this presenter continued on that. It was called FUMOM, so fear of F O M O O M, and that meant fear of missing out on meetings because stuff is happening all the time in many professionals work there is always going to be more meetings and more things to attend that you possibly can mm-hmm. but then we it gets to the point where we can't anymore draw the line that well today i'm really off so i'm gonna have to just miss that and trust that my, my job will still be there when i come back
The third position is shared by two different people with whom I discuss the important topics of communication and trust. The first clip is from the discussion with the strategy and communication expert Mariana Toiminen, talking about communication as a tool for change. What does it mean for you? Because I'm sure that, you know, if I would ask to 10 different people what does communication mean, I would get answers from sending emails to having phone calls to, but what does it really mean for you? What is communication? Well, it's a tool for change. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the only tool we have. Let's face it. It's the only tool we have as humans so far that we know of that enables everything. There's a saying that language tells uh, the way a company talks, the way we use language in our meetings or in our mails reveals if our strategy really lives or if our corporate culture is really open, mm -hmm. the way we talk. Not only the message we share, but the way we talk. So how would you know that true communication is taking place in a company? That is a good question. I think there has to be an element always of sincerity that derives out of trust. You have to find signals of trust in that communication. Actually, we're working in, in the company I work in at the moment, we're working on an AI project that would recognize signals in the language of a company. Whether what kind of signals do you have if a company has an open culture or a trustful culture? What signifies it? Mm -hmm. But as you know, only 7% of human communication is words. That's why uh, mails are problematic or working long distance are problematic without seeing the face. Right, right. We as humans also communicate with micro uh, expressions and gestures and, and tone of voice and such. So openness and trust should be um, looked for if uh, communication is uh, sort of sincere or open. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the dimensions I've noticed where trust becomes very clear to me, it's uh, what I've seen among some of my clients, it's how they deal with conflict. What I notice is that in, in teams where they have a high levels of trust among each other, suddenly it's not anymore the type of emotional conflict or the drama conflict, what you see around, but it's more about the task. It's more about, okay, we disagree. And now how can we find a way to go forward? How can we combine our ideas? So there's not that much competing to see who has the best idea, who's the one who's the smartest. That's why I was referring before to how some companies still reward the ego, reward the winner, the firefighter. But I say many times that, look, if you reward the firefighter, when there's no fires, guess what's going to happen? The firefighter will make sure that gets more fires to get some job. So that type of behavior I notice a lot. I don't know, have you noticed any other type of behavior or something similar? Among I, you? I think what you just described is the sort of alpha male behavior, but there are several companies where the opposite is the problem, okay. the lack of uh, conflict. My colleague actually wrote a book about, about the ability to be able to have conflicting views and to mm -hmm. be able to approach approach difficult conversations. I think that's also a sign of trust. How to be able to talk in general, not to, I mean, ego is another thing, but you know, many companies have the problem that they are not even brave enough to address hard or, or conflicting uh, views or just to bring them on the table. So to how to talk to each other in a constructing way, in a sort of trustful way. Okay, so are you indicating that conflict or task conflict, it's an inherent part of the collective learning? So can we have one without the other? 
I think to be able to compare views in future scenarios, which I work a lot on, spend my time on, it's always the plural, it's always scenarios, mm -hmm. as well as learning. It's about sharing uh, views and finding what's what's new because we don't know what we know unless we sort of share it and learn from others so mm -hmm. it's it's about dialogue that's how learning happens the second part of the third position is shared with the leadership coach minna sutto when discussing how to use communication and conversations to build trust Let's listen to that conversation again. Back in 2009, McKinsey mentioned in one of their quarterly surveys that many studies have concluded that for people with satisfactory salaries, some non-financial motivators are more effective than extra cash in building long-term employee engagement. Many financial rewards mainly generate short-term boosts of energy, which can have damaging unintended consequences. Business leaders have great opportunities to reassess the combination of financial and non-financial incentives that will serve their companies to improve performance and go through difficult times. The respondents of the mentioned survey view three non-cash motivators from which the top two were praise from immediate managers and leadership attention, like for example, one-on-one -on -one conversations. They consider them as no less or even more effective motivators than the three highest rated financial incentives, which were cash bonuses, increased base pay, and stock or stock options. The non-financial motivators play critical roles in making employees feel that their companies value them, take their well-being seriously, and strive to create opportunities for career growth. These themes recur constantly in most of studies on ways to motivate, engage employees, and build trust. Mina, let's concentrate for a while on the top two to understand better which different types of conversations we can focus on to build and maintain trust. So, which kind of conversations we can undertake to work on trust building? This is something that I've been interested in recently, that there are basically at least five different types of conversations that managers could be having to deliberately start building a trustful environment. Mm -hmm. So there are practical steps that you can take towards building a good good relationship with your team and, and in your organization. And the first conversation always is about establishing the trusting relationship. And you cannot have a trusting relationship with somebody unless you get to know the person. So it's about developing the relationship with the person. It's mm -hmm. it's about uh, relationship, not just the tasks that the person is doing, so that you're not just like telling people what to do, but you're actually in, taking an interest in them. Even just socializing? Yeah, socializing is a great way, like, you know, just uh, spending time uh, with people. And I'm just um, doing a training in in a week's time with a, with a group of nurses. And one of the things that they raised in there, which would improve their uh, well-being at work, is to have more coffee breaks together, you mm -hmm. know. This Sounds is just like, me. you know, because they have new team members coming in there yeah. and, you know, they just said, you know, this would be like the number one thing for them to start building a better environment. And I was thinking that that's not a very costly thing to do. Coffee breaks mm. have everything to do with the community, building community, building trust with each other. And you, when, once I get to know you better, then I will be able to trust you in very critical moments. And, and those nurses definitely have some very critical moments in their work. That's a very interesting case when thinking one of my clients just told me a couple of weeks ago that uh, her manager told her that, look, we didn't come here 
or we don't come here to make friends or to socialize yes. Yes. or drink coffee. We come yes. here to work and that's about it. So please stop spending time talking to your other mm. workmates about your weekend or socializing a bit. So let's focus on completing the task because we are busy. So from what you're saying, that is totally counterproductive. It, it, it will damage the... It, the coffee machines are the places where every you know valuable piece of information is being changed in companies. And it's the place where people build relationships. And I, probably the worst thing that companies can do is to cut cut those social breaks with that people really need. Coffee or tea? Coffee or tea, coffee or tea, or, or even water. Like, you know, I know when, when people still smoked, I would go out with people. I'd never smoked myself, but I would mm-hmm. go, you know, when they would smoke their cigarettes, just for the social experience. So it's it's whatever you do, but you need to have something to gather around, like some kind of like a, a reason. And that's that's a very important thing. And as a manager, you, you really need to get to have these discussions and and the main topic of a first trust building conversation is that what do I need to get to know about you, Mm -hmm. your motivations, your style, your preferences, so that I can help you to be your best and we can work together really effectively. And also, what do you want to know about me? Trust is a two-way high street, right? So it, it goes both ways. I trust you and you trust me. That is correct. And I guess that also in this kind of conversations, then we'd have the opportunity to open what would be the second conversation, which is, okay, how can we agree on the mutual expectations? Mutual expectation is the, is the second conversation, that when you kind of like you know the person, then you start talking about what do I expect from you at your work? You know, when you're working in my team, what are your what's your role and what do you need to be doing here so that you will be fulfilling your role? Mm-hmm. And also you will need to be able to tell me that what is your expectation of me as your manager? How often would you say want to have conversations with me and what kind of support would you need and how would you like to be left alone in certain places like you know would you like to do things independently so that I know that I I will not become your micromanager so all of all of these things and and the mutual expectations so that you will know what I expect from you and and the other way around also so this is the conversation number two you said that there were five so which would be number three number three would be showing genuine appreciation so that I notice you at work and that I notice what you're doing, what, why I like working with you, what is good about you, uh, what has been good about your performance today. We all go to work also for the social contacts that we have. And That's this right. builds trust that I am seen as a person. We, we don't want to be treated just as objects or, or machines that are or some kind of like robots who, who are working there. You want to really like, you know, have, have these conversations when you show appreciation for people. I think it's important as well in those mm. contexts to be very concrete. Yes. So it's not just about saying, okay, you're a very nice person. Yes. It's about recognizing that excellence, recognizing specifically what is the thing that this person did well yes. and what you admire. Even if you experience that on a first person or you heard even from somebody else to use the opportunity, if it's not on the spot, even later on to come back that you heard from somebody that said, I'm bringing that element of praise as well. Just to give some examples, a template that was given a couple of years ago that I think it's very useful is like have three different methods depending if you are in the moment, you heard about it, or you want to come back with it later on. So you could simply say that uh, when you're with that person, just say that I want you to point out several things I've noticed that you have done very well recently and just go specifically with those. The good thing about this method is that you can also use email communication. I notice that sometimes some people, they don't like, they feel a bit shy of face-to-face interaction. So when you notice that those are the preferences of those type of people, it's also nice for them to receive yes. even a text message or, or an email. I always prefer face-to-face, but I notice that sometimes people, they like this other kind of way of communicating. If you have heard from somebody else, 
you can simply say that, okay, John told me that you really excel or you perform really well at this concrete yes. uh, task or solving this. So it's another way to bring that element or just bring in the trio element. So if there is, I don't know, there is Susan in front of you, I would say like, hey, Susan, uh, while Mina is here with us, uh, let me tell you, let me share with you some of the things that Mina has been doing recently. Great. Mm -hmm. that I want to share and some of the things I, I really like about her performance. And then also use that social element to promote that person among others. That's very good. That's really, that sounds really great. I wish that uh, somebody would have done that to me <laughs> at some stage. <laughs> It's never too late. You know, I just did it. So. <laughs> no, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. So what would be then the number four if we move to the next conversation? It's that challenging, unhelpful behavior. And by unhelpful, I don't necessarily mean that somebody is being rude or behaving in a disruptive manner. Unhelpful behavior can be something that is uh, below the level of expectation, something that you're not doing that would help your performance. So these conversations um, are always about helping other people perform better. So that is your kind of like the motivation for those discussions. As an example, I, I could tell an example about a recently appointed key account manager in an organization where I was working years ago. And she was uh, uncertain of herself and her responsibilities at the beginning. And she would let the previous key account manager who was in all of those meetings to answer all the questions that really had to do with her clients now. Okay. And she was not able to own the client and own those questions. So after one of those meetings, when I had spotted this behavior in her, I took her aside after the meeting and I challenged her uh, very kindly. And I said to her that that it's really time for you to up your game and, you know, start start taking responsibility for your client. Um, but he knows the client so much better, she said to me. And I said, so what? Do what you need to do to get to know your client so that you can you know, take the role that you have been given, because in any organization, you know, if you don't perform the role that you are supposed to be performing, yeah. somebody else is going to be performing in that place. And uh, you are the key account manager now. So, you know, start acting like it. And uh, this was like light bulb moment for her, because from the next meeting, she started behaving in a totally different way. She started answering those questions and, and I could see the expression on the face of the previous key account manager, like he was about to start answering the question, but, you know, she would butt in and she would kind of like take the role. You know, she became a really valuable key account manager and, mm -hmm. and she was excellent in her job. It's just about, sometimes it's about courage to to have those discussions where you are encouraging other people to be who they are supposed to be. And as you said before, sometimes the unhelpful behavior is not just about negative hmm. kind of habits. No. I had this one case of a, of a CFO that he was promoted to a new a new role. And then he kept them behaving still as a CFO, mm -hmm. which still was creating some results, right? He was creating some outcome at the end of the day. It wasn't exactly the kind of outcome that it was expected from him. So after chatting with him and after he realized that he needed to incorporate new habits, the old ones that had been helping him to achieve certain goals were not useful anymore. Hmm. And he just need to replace those with new ones, especially when related to micromanagement or checking numbers or and then instead of that, focusing yes. more on supporting his hmm. uh, his team. So sometimes it's about that. So, of course, it can be about negative uh, behaviors that hmm. impact in that yes. way to other people or the results. Hmm. Or sometimes it just things that worked before, 
but they don't work anymore. So mm. they don't help you reaching your final goals. There was this uh, Danish uh, TV series, like um, which I really loved, about a prime minister in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this brilliant moment when this woman had become the prime minister of Denmark in this series. And she had a wise mentor, a political mentor. And he once said to her, if you are doing everybody else's job, who is doing yours? I thought that was a brilliant moment, like you know. And what was the answer? <laughs> well, there was a there was a quiet moment. There was no clever comeback, and I I kind of like I often go back to that because that mm. is what happens when we are not comfortable in performing the job that we have been given. So what we have seen so far until now, conversation number one was establishing a trusting relationship. Conversation number two was agreeing mutual expectations. The third type of conversation was showing genuine appreciation. And the last one, the number four we have seen, it's been challenging and helpful behaviors. So what would be the last one? Conversation number five would be building the future and talking about the future mm-hmm. career aspirations or growth needs or whatever is relevant for, for this person. And having these discussions regularly rather than just like the once a year, some kind of like a performance review. Great point, But yeah. having these discussions like what are you learning? What are you? What are your targets at the moment? And when we see that the company is changing, our, our strategy is changing, then we always need to have these conversations that, you know, how is your desire and your development going to be linked to the uh, targets of the company and the strategy of the company? And how can you already start building the skills that we need in this company in the future when we want those people to stay with us and what is the direction of the company to use those opportunities as well to share more information about the company as you just said i think it's extremely critical because sometimes i notice as well that many employees they lose that sense of direction what's the purpose of what we are doing what is the ambition that we are having you know Because without that piece of information, it's very hard for anybody to decide what to prioritize. What should I be doing first? Mm -hmm. What is the meaning behind Mm -hmm. what I do? So taking those uh, moments to build the future in both dimensions, one thinking about me as a human being, how can I grow and continue developing? And at the same time, what is the sense of direction? What is the ultimate vision that I'm going for together with the rest of the community, the rest of the group, to have that sense of belonging? I think that this is a great conversation opportunity to bring that element as well of belonging and being part of something bigger than just your own growth. And then we need to ask again, like, why is this discussion, why is this conversation trust building? Mm -hmm. You know, it is trust building because I can be open about what I want in my life and what the company is planning. And it's, it's openness, it's transparency. I had the opportunity to discuss with Mark Palahi, the director of the European Forest Institute, about the future of bioeconomy and how radical changes and a mindset transformation are needed to generate the required paradigm shift. This clip took the second position in our top five. To create radical transformation, we need a total different way of thinking. And that requires to face one of the big challenges, which is things like our own ego the stubbornness to believe that we know all what we know and this requires as well to forget things that we know to bring in new learnings to bring in new knowledge and go towards some let's let me call you know lands where we don't have maps we only have compass with us 
that usually the metaphor I use, maps and compasses. Yes. For process improvements, we have maps, we understand where we are, so we can navigate and it feels more comfortable. Having said that, to go into the area that you are mentioning, we need compasses. And the only thing that the compasses tells us is our north, nothing else. And to have that north, we need a, we need a strong vision as well to be on place. Yes. So for institutions and companies, what I've seen when they lack, first of all, the north, they lack the vision and the strong passion to go towards that place where they know that they don't have maps, that they only have a compass and they will have to face the struggles, they will have to face failures and they will have to learn new things. And that's okay. It's not until then when they can make these radical transformations. And for this case, if I understand you're right, you're pointing at the same direction, is that we don't know how we will get there. But if we have a strong vision and we have the eagerness to try and learn new things and use this compass that tells us what is the north, what is that passion that we want to strive toward, we'll get there at some point. But we just need to understand that it's a lot of learning and unknowns we will need to face. And that's okay. Exactly. Fully agree, Mark. And I think many times I use this parallel is that in, if you look back to the Renaissance, you know, from the 16th century up to the 19th century, we experience huge transformations. The Renaissance, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. So there were 300 years where the, we really put the basis for a modern era. And now we are in a time of history that in the next three decades, we will need to experience transformations as huge as we experienced in those 300 years before. So we need a new renaissance to really reflect about the role of humanity in nature and the role of nature in humanity. We need a new industrial revolution, which is based on the digital and the biological sub-revolutions, because at the end of the day, the digital revolution is transforming the way that we can understand nature and the way that we can unlock value from our biological systems. Mm -hmm. So I think the new industrial revolution would be happening at the interface, at the merging of the digital and the bio. And let me have a reflection about this uh, digital revolution. Now it's very fashionable for companies, cities to be digital, you know? Everyone is fascinated about these sophisticated technologies, the digital. And I think it's also time to be humble and recognize that nature is the ultimate sophistication. This is very important, you know? Now when everything is digital, schools, companies, everyone is... I think it's the most important time to be humble mm -hmm. and come back to nature and recognize that nature, which is the result of billions of years of evolution, which is the most advanced engineering on the planet. So we need to recognize that that is the ultimate sophistication and we need to get inspiration from nature. Many of the solutions to our problems are there. We need to observe all these billions of evolutions that are lying there in our forest, in our oceans. You see, you get me excited, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that is excellent to hear. When I think about the years I spent working in Japan and China, I noticed that a lot of their wisdom is based on stories from nature. You're right. To learn and observe. You're right. Very quickly, I recall a story I heard from one of my clients in China of, of this pastry that they talked to kids to talk about this topic. And, you know, this pastry that was selling, was selling muffins. And then suddenly one day they noticed that some of the boxes they were getting did not have any muffin inside. So it was very hard when they were selling to clients. Clients were going home with empty boxes and they were getting angry. And this was like a national worldwide problem. So then the story goes that there was this big factory that invested millions of euros to design this machine that would detect the weight of the boxes and pull them aside when they were not having a muffin inside. And then this small guy from this bakery didn't have all those resources. So what he did is like he went for a walk to the forest and then suddenly he noticed how the wind was wiping out the leaves that just were falling off the trees in autumn. And then he just got the idea, he went back to his store 
And the only thing he did, he placed the fan in front of the boxes. So the boxes that didn't weigh anything just <laughs> were taken away <laughs> by the wind. And that costed, what, five, ten euros? While the other guys, they use all the technology and they invest in millions. And these kind of stories have been used for many years through ancient, ancient cultures. So I believe that what you're pointing at now to stop for a while and reflect and look back at the answers we have around us, it's a very, very important factor. And that brings in mind actually one of your posts, Mark, that I read that I, I really like. You started your post, if I recall, mentioning uh, Nelson Mandela, who once said that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And this touched me a lot, especially after my, my daughter, I have a 12 years old daughter, and she has started to ask me, you know, she looks very concerned about what's going on and which kind of future we're going to live for her. And I'm going to paraphrase one question uh, that in the way that you open up your mentioned post, how can education help to build a sustainable future, balancing economy, ecology, nature and society in the era of digitalization and urbanization, as you have just been mentioning? I, I think it's crucial. Eh? And I think this sentence, I like that you took it because it's one of my favorite ones. And I think without education, we will not be able to change the world. You know, as Nelson Mandela was saying, is the most powerful weapon we, ha we have to change the world. And I think this is crucial that we invest in proper education so that the new generations will be again connected to nature. If we need to realize a, a bioeconomy in the future, you know, bringing life at the center of the economy, we need to start educating our children, which currently think uh, we are living in an urbanized society. So most kids in the world, more than 50% of the kids are being educated in cities how are our cities look like most of the cities is basically asphalt concrete steel okay a few trees but and i think we need a fundamental shift in how our cities look our schools look and how we invest in our children to reconnect back to nature mm -hmm. so that they understand that what we just discussed you know that many of the solutions and many of the questions are there in nature they need to understand all these cycles and I think this is very important. If you look at the digital economy, the smartphones, the, you know, the, the anxiety that all this causes and the lack of attention because kids are all the time now looking at uh, screens and they are activated by many signals. I think it's very important that we take time to walk in the forest with them, that they can touch trees, that they can see that you can make materials new materials based on wood, which are organic materials. So I think it's, it's basic, it's fundamental that we invest in education. Otherwise, we will not be able at the end of the day to, to make the transformational change that we need, because these new generations are the ones that will need to take the lead. I think you and me have experienced Finland. Finland is a very good model in that sense. You know, my kids here, I am living, as you know, 500 kilometers north from Helsinki, in the middle of forest and lakes. And I, I think one of the things that I love in Finland and one of the reasons what I am, why I am living in Finland is that for them it's very clear that education is not negotiable. For Finland, education is a fundamental pillar of a democratic country. And I think it's where the distribution of a, of a democratic uh, and distributed economy starts. Mm -hmm. you know, because high quality education, regardless of the income of the parents, is crucial for building a, a resilient society. And I think if you look at the Finnish education, they invest a lot of time, resources, but also they bring uh, children to nature, to the forest. They spend a lot of time outside, even if when it is minus 20, minus 50 yes. degrees, you know it well. <laughs> so they take them, if it is raining, doesn't matter. They need to spend time outside. They need to just get dirty, 
touch the leaves on the on the ground and i think this is this is exactly play but also see the rhythm of nature which is very different from the rhythm that you are used to with tvs ipads uh, consoles all these things so i think it's important to see that timing and time flows in a very different way and things require time the change of the color of the leaves how a butterfly flies you know i think this this is very important you know to bring this connection back it's time to reveal which moment took the number one position and that would be without any doubts the opportunity i had to interview the bestseller and author of the book loon shots safi wakal my favorite moment of that talk was when we talk about the false failures and the different levels of strategic thinking we can develop individually and in teams to achieve better results. Let's enjoy this clip. So let's talk about teams for a moment and see how they face especially uh, adversity and failures. Because uh, if I understand right on, uh, on what you're saying about Loonshot Adventures, is there's a lot of that, a lot of learnings and a lot of failures on the way. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your book how Gary Kasparov, uh, the chess champion, how they seem to have a rather good approach towards unexpected outcomes. Uh, could you walk us through uh, what was his approach when he didn't get the expected results during one of his uh, chess matches and the learnings on how to use that strategy back in business and also in our lives? Sure. The, uh, what I took from Gary uh, Kasparov uh, was one of the ideas that he used to describe what made him so successful as a chess champion. So. To explain what that has to do with business, let, let's talk about sort of three different levels of strategic thinking. And the, the first okay. one I would call level zero, which is after you finish launching a product or executing a strategy, it goes well or it doesn't, you don't look back at all. You don't reflect on uh, what worked well and what didn't. That's sort of level zero. And unfortunately, that's actually pretty common, uh, you know, and I, I was guilty of that, especially when I was younger and first starting out, <laughs> you know, you have a small company, you're racing forward, you try some stuff and uh, it doesn't work. And you're like, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, actually, so that's sort of the lowest level of strategy. You don't actually pause to say, well, let's try to understand what are the lessons here, um, whether it worked well or it didn't, you know, you don't pause. And that's actually pretty common. So the next level, level one is, is after you launch a product or execute a new strategy uh, and you see how it does, you ask yourself, what are the learnings from that outcome? Mm -hmm. So let's say we launched a new type of computer and our market, we expected to get a market share of 10% and we got uh, 20%. So what it exceeded our expectations. So what did we learn that? Or let's say you expected to get a market share of 10% and you got a market share of 2%. So you did really poorly. Either way, you analyze the outcome of what just happened and say, what can I learn from that? For example, uh, you know, our computer didn't have this type of screen and our competitor did have that type of screen. And that's, we seem to think that's why customers preferred it. Uh, the competitors, and therefore in the future, we should make sure we have this type of screen. So that's outcome. Mm -hmm. In the military, they call that uh, an after-action report. Try to, 
incorporate those learnings for the future. So that's good, but that's not great. What made Gary Kasparov so successful is something I would call a system mindset, where he looks not at the outcome, not just at the outcome, but how he arrived at the decision. So here's what I mean by that in chess, or here's what he means by that in chess. Your typical chess player will say, I moved you know, pawn to uh, king's bishop uh, three, and uh, that move was a really bad move, and I lost the, the game because of that move. So um, you know, I should make sure if the, 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 the pieces are aligned in this way, the next time I should make sure not to do that again. So that's level one thinking, what, uh, looking at the outcome. But what Kasparov talks about is to keep asking, why did I make that move? When he moved pawn to king's bishop three, what was he thinking? How did he arrive in his mind at the decision that pawn to king bishop three was the right decision at that time with that opponent? So how did he formulate the 15 different options? And what made him pick, what was his evaluation criteria that made him pick that one move and not the 14 other moves? And that's hmm. saying, how do I create options in my mind? How do I evaluate those options? What criteria am I using for those options? So that's analyzing the system. And the reason the analyzing the system is so much more powerful is because just analyzing the outcome, sort of level one thinking, prevents you from moving pawn to king bishop three again. But if you analyze how you made that decision, that could affect all your decisions for all your future games. So it could affect your entire play if you find a better process. So let's translate back to the real world, or not the real world, yeah. the real uh, you know, daily life of managing ourselves or managing our business. Mm -hmm. Let's take, for example, to stick to individual, let's say you made an investment decision. A friend comes mm -hmm. to you, says, hey, I, I've got this business I'm starting on the side. Would you like to support my business? Would you like to write a check to support my business? And you say yes, and not surprisingly, it ends up a disaster and you lose all your money. Now, the outcome is I lost all my money on my friend's you know, side project to build furniture at home and sell it and open a furniture store. So you could say, well, okay, his furniture wasn't very good, and so in the future... Anytime a friend comes to me with his idea of opening a furniture store, I'm going to look more closely at his furniture. And if I don't think it's very good, I'm not going to invest. Okay, well, that's level one thinking. But level two thinking is your own system. How did you arrive at the decision to write this person a check? And if you start being honest with yourself, you say, well, he was a friend and he looked very needy and I felt that if I said no to him, I would be very guilty and it would hurt our friendship. And now you'd say, oh, that was what was in my mind. I wasn't really thinking about the quality of business. I was letting the emotion of my personal friendship get in the way. That's why I wrote him the check, if I'm really honest with myself, not because I thought it was a great investment. So then you say, well, how should I change my system for making my decisions in the future? You should say, well, maybe what should I should do before I make any decision I should create a checklist. You know, check one is analyze the business, but check two is analyze the emotions. To what extent am I influenced by my emotion and find a process that makes me honest, like ask my wife <laughs> or ask my other friend who's independent. 
do you think I'm being influenced by emotion or do you think I'm being influenced by rational business logic? And then make a checklist. If I think I'm being influenced by emotion here more than business logic, make write down for myself all the reasons this might be a disaster. Write down all the ways this might go wrong. If we lose money, then I'm going to feel bad and then he's going to feel guilty and then my friendship might even be worse with him. And create alternatives. Tell him that I make as a rule that I don't invest in friends' decisions. So what I mean by level two thinking there is go to understanding the system by which you make a decision personally. What is your checklist for making an investment, for example? And change that checklist. The reason that's so more powerful is that you save not only the mistakes of investing in furniture businesses, but in all sorts of other things like buying stocks or buying other businesses or making other investments, you learn to separate emotions from you know, rational business logic a little bit better. So that's analyzing the system. And when you apply that to teams and companies, it's the same principle. Rather than the team getting together and you know, let's say it was eight people that launched a particular product, and rather than those eight people get together two weeks after product launch and say, let's analyze the outcome, what worked well, what didn't, they say, Let's say it didn't work well, and they say, you want to ask, how did we analyze the decision to launch that product two weeks ago? Let's say you launched the computer with a computer screen, and the screen wasn't as good as your competitors, and your customers didn't like it, and so that's why the customers weren't buying it, and you lost market share. How did you make the decision to launch that product with that screen? Was it one person? Were there other people in the room who already knew that information? If they didn't, why didn't we know that information? Maybe we should change our process for gathering competitive information and doing market tests. If they did know that information and they didn't share it, why didn't they share it? I can see there's something extremely uh, interesting on the team side. Uh, let me ask you one deeper level of analysis on especially how a team handles what you are talking about now on understanding and getting onto the system mindset because recognizing a mistake in front of a whole team can be kind of uncomfortable and it requires i believe a type of maturity for that team right so what would you say that uh, what how could companies support this kind of team development so they feel comfortable doing what you just said because it already you know uh, what's going through my mind how can somebody not take this personal when you're discussing what you're talking about that's a great great question you're absolutely right uh it is uh very painful to admit mistakes not only to yourself you know i made a stupid investment decision for example just by my and uh hmm. you know that was uh a flaw and it's painful to admit flaws it's painful to share flaws it's even worse in a team and even scarier in a team situation where people want to look good in front of their peers. Not only that, they're fighting for promotions in front of mm. their peers. So you're asking a great question, which is, how do you get to that level of honesty? So there are a couple of things there. Firstly, uh, every team should have a team leader. Otherwise, it's going to be a little chaotic. Mm. So it has to start from the beginning before you get to the after-action report or the post-mortem saying, we're going to do this, and I, I'm going to set the expectation that we're going to have a very honest timeout feedback 
of a, a, a two-hour meeting at the end of this process. It could be a month. It could be two months. It could be six months. It could be a year from now, where, as a rule, we will have an outcome assessment, but also a system assessment of how we made the decision. So you set expectations. You go into the meeting, and you say it is first you establish a higher purpose. You say mm-hmm. there are two ways we can do this. We can all do the usual form of business where we keep to ourselves what we really think because we're afraid of hurting other people's feelings. We're afraid of creating mm-hmm. conflict because saying things that are difficult creates conflict, and that's always a tough thing to do. But we have to realize that if we want collectively to get better as a team, collectively, if we want to do better than our competitors, we're going to have to take an uncomfortable two hours to put on the table, start with what we think work well, but also where we think we can do better in how we make decisions as a team. For example, how do we, did we go about and collect competitive market intelligence well enough as a team? Did we go about and test early prototypes well enough as a team? When we got that data, did we share it honestly? Or did some people in the team feel the need to please the team leader or the CEO and massage the data to make it more like what they thought? And those are painful things to talk about. So how do you do that? It's very important for the leader there to start by setting that tone. Often what helps, at least I've found in my own personal experience, is to be vulnerable, is to start by saying, here's what I think I did badly. And let's each go around and collect anonymous feedback. So one thing is for the leader and all leaders to preemptively set that expectation we're going to do that. If you do it right at the end, after something goes badly, people are going to be much more defensive. It went badly, so now everybody's going to look for for fingers to, you know, where to point blame. But if you do it Mm -hmm. at the beginning and you say, I don't care if if the outcome is good or if the outcome is bad, either way, we're going to have a two-hour, totally honest system mindset assessment. How did we arrive at our decisions? It's equally important to do it if things go well, because you might have just gotten lucky. You actually launched a bad product with a bad (laughs) decision-making process. You know, people had all sorts of important information that wasn't shared. The leader didn't listen, uh, didn't follow a reasonable set of processes for getting the best ideas on the table. Yet your competitor was even worse. They stumbled. So you got lucky and you Hmm. won. So you don't want to keep doing that. You actually want to learn from that. In advance, you say, look, we're going to have a system mindset. Number one, you do it in advance. Number two, you keep emphasizing the purpose. The purpose of this is for us to win in the market one year from now, two years from now, three years from now. We will never win unless we improve how we arrive at decisions. Because if our competitors are improve, if our competitor is Gary Kasparov and he's constantly improving how he arrives at decision, he's going to kick our ass. So we better do this. That's number two. Number three, if you are the team leader, you set the stage by admitting all or think thinking about all the things or admitting all the things you think you could have done better and putting it out there for discussion. And that will open up and give people more freedom. And then secondly, you, you, if you're the leader as part of that, when people raise their object, their ideas, you don't dismiss them. You know, you might put all of the things on mm-hmm. around on a wall on a post-it and then quietly have people vote, you know, with little stickers, which they think are the most likely 
contributors, and then that way you identify the top two or three in some certain kind of honest way to surface what people really think. And mm -hmm. as you know, and as I know, having managed teams, surfacing what people really think around the table is a very tricky art form. That's right. Most people are scared to speak up, especially in a group, unless they're incredible extroverts and incredibly self-confident, which is pretty rare. Mm -hmm. And your job as a leader is to surface that stuff because what they're holding back could be very valuable. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. So that process, as you, I think, sort of said, works quite well if you are a mature, self-aware leader. One of the things that I found enormously helpful, especially in the first few years, is to have a third-party, independent, trusted person facilitating mm -hmm. that exercise. And the key Makes is a, tr a trusted person. So for example, at my group and my team, we had uh, one guy, he was internal. At some point we had external people, either one can work. The most important is that they're trusted. So mm -hmm. in, in my uh, team or company, there was a guy who uh, you know, was a generation older than me. He was probably at least 20 years older than me. Uh, and he mm -hmm. had been a, an athlete. He'd been a former football player here in America. And he had a very... Uh, straightforward, honest, no-nonsense style, and uh, but very serious about what we were doing and trying to win as a team. Mm -hmm. And everybody trusted him. I trusted him. Other employees trusted him. You would tell him something and you knew he wanted to help you be the best version of you that you could be. And then he would treat what you told him in confidence and everybody just knew that about him. And so when he came into the room, he could help teams be honest in ways that were often difficult, as you say, for the reasons that you say, for teams to be honest. So they were afraid of what people around them might think. They're afraid of their careers. So when you want to have those important meetings, either you as the team leader, if you've reached that level of maturity or self-awareness, or even better, if you have a third party, Sometimes before that meeting, you meet one-on-one -on -one with individuals on that team, privately, mm -hmm. and you surface what are they really thinking? Where did we go right and where did we go wrong? And that's private information. But then in the course of the group session, you try to make sure those ideas get out and in front of the group in a mm -hmm. non-threatening way. So those are some of the tools or techniques that I learned mostly the hard way. Uh, through doing it wrong many years, uh, to try to do a system mindset and a post-mortem in an honest way to get the best ideas on the table. So these were my five top favorite moments I have experienced during the first 20 chapters. I would love to hear if there has been any chapter special for you as well. You can let me know by sending an email to mark at growthcoach.fi. That's spelled M-A-R-C at G-R-O-W-T-H-C-O-A-C-H dot F-I. Or message me via Twitter at Mark Siles, M-A-R-C-S-I-L-E-S. So that was all for today, and thank you very much for being a loyal listener. Let us know if there is any topic you would like us to cover down in the space for comments. Have a great rest of the week. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening our bi-weekly podcast. And remember, this is about spreading and sharing the knowledge. So feel free to forward this audio to anybody you believe could get any benefit out of it. Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey.